Hi everyone, this is Matt from the Curbsiders, recording live from the beautiful Pocono Mountains in what is a very rare weekend away from the children with my wife. I I wanted to take this time to introduce this episode. This is part two to our par- polypharmacy episode. After we spoke with Dr. Jeffrey, Paul and Stuart and I were talking a bit more on polypharmacy We talk for about 20 minutes or so. The topics we cover here are polypharmacy in the underserved population, prescribing in CKD, a little bit more on that. Also, diabetes management and hypertension management towards the end of life or in the elderly or frail. I think it's an interesting discussion, and I just couldn't bring myself to to throw it all on the cutting room floor. So hopefully you enjoy it. And finally, I wanted to thank everyone who applied to our Curbsiders Correspondent Program. Today is the final day for applications. We have received what I would call an overwhelming amount of applications, which I was pleasantly surprised at. We've had some amazing applicants from a very diverse range of backgrounds. I can't possibly use everybody right now, but we we are going to select a small number of correspondence to appear on air, and we will probably be doing this again in the future if things go well. So please give us your feedback on our correspondence, and please apply again in the future, even if you weren't selected this time around. And thank you so much for listening and all of your support. So without further ado, here is another discussion on polypharmacy with my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham and Dr. Paul Williams. And we're back. Well, hello. Hello. You know, Paul, a question that I I had kind of as I was preparing for the show here that we didn't get into with Dr. Jeffrey, you work in largely underserved population, underinsured or uninsured. Is is polypharmacy, do you think it's the same kind of problem it is where when I was I was recently working in a single payer system where patients had no copays and polypharmacy was a huge problem because patients uh, essentially had no skin in the game. They, they didn't, you know, they had no financial skin in the game anyway. Right. Right. I, I think that's a really interesting question. And, you know, we, we worked together for a time and I know that you've, you've taken care of the same population. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but it, I'm, it's a problem and it's a real problem. And I think part of it is if an area is urban and sort of underserved, that means it's probably proximate to a teaching hospital. So follow me on this one. And if it's proximate to a teaching hospital, you're, a primary care office that probably is seeing a high volume of patients that has easy access to subspecialists. And so one of the ways to sort of maximize your time, you have heart failure, well, then we should probably have you see cardiology. Oh, you're diabetic. We should probably see, have you see an endocrinologist. And God bless our subspecialists, and I think they serve an important role. But when you're only tools a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. And so I think you sort of farm out some of your own work. Um, not, no, that's the wrong way to say it. But you, you send them to different subspecialists in part to save time and in part because it's just so easy to do it. And then they each address their own specific problem and sort of kind of throw the book at them. And even if you're even kind of mindful of $4 formulary medications or less expensive medications and you're not even using the entrestos of the world, you're still using a lot of medications and probably being more mindful of your own specific area of specialty rather than sort of thinking of the whole picture. And then Mm -hmm. the patient returns to the primary care doctor and you're sort of left with 74 meds started by other providers that – probably it's not initially been thoughtful about the interactions and sort of the actual goal for the patient's care. So I think we see it, but it might happen in a kind of different context than say in a different type of environment. Does that make any kind of sense? 
makes a lot of sense and saves them. Another and and another quick thing that I've noticed being back in this world uh, for about a month now is is that there has been there's been patients who they seem to have polypharmacy, but when I really get into it with the family and the patient, they're not yeah. sure what they're taking. So they've been prescribed right. what looks like polypharmacy, but what they're actually taking might be half of that. And that right. that kind of can be just as confusing or potentially dangerous because now suddenly if if you put them in the hospital and they take all those things, they're going to have a problem. Or if you if you do a med rec and now they're taking everything, they're going to have an issue. So right. and actually, Doctor Jeffrey, uh, one of the, the the he mentioned a home visit case where that had happened. Someone got put back on their uh, alpha blocker for BPH and their blood pressure bottomed out because it had been yeah. prescribed but wasn't being taken. So. That's that's another interesting kind of factor to this whole problem. Do you want to talk about statins at all? No, um, Stuart. As a as a complete <laughs> to completely uh, segue in an awkward way, I wanted to I wanted to bring the up, only way we do it here on the curbside. I know, absolutely. I I did want to jump and talk ta- talking about renally dosing medications and how you guys do it because I was trying to read through like what's recommended here and I found some mm-hmm. articles that say well Cockcroft Galt was how a lot of the clinical trials were done it's even though it's the older test and may not be as good as the CKD Epi or the MDRD when kind of if you did a twenty four hour urine urine study and then looked at the the creatinine clearance and then use the various equations they say see cockroft galt is the one that's not as good but historically it had been used a lot so i'm wondering what do you guys use when you're dosing medications in the elderly and i i i'm going to send this out to ask renal on twitter again and see if we can get a good answer here for the audience yeah i i think the ideal answer is is pretty difficult to adhere to. And that is to know what calculator was used in the phase three clinical trial. Um, and then to use that same calculation to, to determine whether or not you need to really dose the medication for your patient or not. Unfortunately, the facility that I work at currently, or it, it moved over to, to CKD Epi for our uh, uh, GFR calculation. And so it's a little bit onerous and difficult to go back and recalculate everything for our patients. I think ultimately w- what it comes down to, to both uh, for consistency sake and, and, and time's sake, I, ultimately, I, I find myself using CKD Epi. I do not think it's the best way to go about doing it, though. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I mean, some of the things that I've, I've seen, say, CKD Epi for younger, healthier patients gives you a good estimate. If patients have CKD 3 or 4, the MDRD is pretty good. But honestly, uh, trying to read into this, I, I couldn't get a great answer. So, um, hopefully we can get one from our from our chief of nephrology on Twitter. I think uh, I think there's a good chance we'll be able to get an answer there for the audience. So look yep. to t- look to Twitter for that one. And if I get the answer in time, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Just send at underscore or at kidney underscore boy. Just a multiple, a, just a slew of questions. That way he he's forced to answer it. <laughs> Don't, please don't do that. He's yeah, no, good. The, the man's please bully our experts. The man's the man's uh, spending enough time answering questions on Twitter. He's he's uh yeah he doesn't he doesn't need our audience uh, bullying him. Well, I, I do I do want to talk about some disease specific cases here for uh, for prescribing and deprescribing in the elderly. And why don't we start with diabetes here? Paul, what's your kind of approach to A1C goals and, in general, pharmacotherapy for diabetes? What kind of type 2 diabetes specifically? 
Right. Yeah. Type two diabetes is, I mean, is the one I'm thinking about with our elderly patients. And I, I know the guidelines differ. We talked a little bit about this off the air. I think some are very stringent and recommend if you can get them to 6.5, by all means, push it. And as long as they're not keeling over mission accomplished. And then I think some are, are a little bit less rigid. Um, I think, and I'm stealing some of these teaching points just from some articles I read that I just happened to agree with after I thought about it. But really, when you think about what you're trying to accomplish with managing diabetes, is two things, right? So the first thing is, is preventing the micro and macrovascular complications. And so I think in a geriatric population or an older population, a lot of that sort of determines, it depends upon life expectancy. So if you have someone who's 97 years old, um, unless you've done, and they've done a spectacular job, you know, Worrying about the macro and microvascular complications at that point, that ship has probably sailed, and you're sort of left with the other half of what you're trying to do, which is actually prevent symptoms. Mm -hmm. And in general, the prevention of symptoms of, of hyperglycemia like polyuria and polydipsia don't happen until you hit an A1C of around nine. So I, I think there, I've seen recommendations some places of anywhere between seven and a half and nine for your older patients, seven and a half if you're erring on the side of you know, a good decade left because you still have some chance to prevent some complications, but then becoming sort of less stringent as the patient's um, age advances or their life expectancy shortens. So it's a lot of it's an individualized goal based on what you're trying to accomplish and how meaningful you think that preventing uh, micro macrovascular complications will be by having a tighter A1C. And one one more comment on the A1C. At, at ACE, I heard one of the speakers, it was pretty much specifically on this topic, dosing diabetes medications in the elderly. And she was saying, if you have an elderly patient who's on renally dosed metformin, they're, they're doing okay, and their A1C happens to be 6%, don't stop that metformin if the patient's doing okay, because it's not, it's not, the risk of harm is not there. So it's okay for that person to have a low A1C. But if you have this patient who's having these suspicious episodes of dizziness and their A1C is 5.5% and they're on a basal insulin, well, then you, you're you probably going to back off of that basal insulin, or I would highly recommend you back <laughs> off of that basal insulin. And then the AGS, they do set these limits where they say healthy people, um, the American Geriatric Society, they have in their choosing wisely, I think it's the number three bullet point on there. It says seven to 7.5 for healthy patients. Uh, with more than 10-year life expectancy for patients kind of uh, a, sh a shorter life expectancy and moderate comorbidities, it's kind of 75 to 8%. And then you can let it drift up to 9% for your sicker patients with a limited life expectancy, which is kind of vague, but I think it's it's clinical, your, your clinical judgment, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the, I guess that's the flip side of this is when you start de-escalating. So it's it's one thing. I think part of what I was thinking about is in terms of initiating or in terms of your treatment goal, but when do you start scaling back? Mm -hmm. And like like Matt said, if they're doing great on metformin, just leave it be. But if you do need to de-escalate, then de-escalate based on the adverse effects that you're seeing. So if they're hypoglycemic, stop the sulfonylurea, back off the insulin, simplify this insulin regimen. If they're having low extremity edema, stop the TZD. If they're having GI side effects, back off the metformin. Because it's at this point... The emphasis is shifting more towards quality of life and less towards just getting the A1C to a number that makes you proud of yourself. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I love no, I, I love how you put it in such uh, frank terms, Paul. That's that's great. And Stuart, I, I think we should shift uh, just for time's sake and kind of talk a little bit about blood pressure management in the elderly and where we start to de-escalate here and what, what sort of targets we're shooting for. 
Right. So, I, you know, I, I, I think, Matt, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is the frailty of our patients, number one. Um, not just looking at the trials and so not just looking at HIVET, not just looking at SPRINT, but if someone is, is incredibly frail, then the risk of having adverse events or adverse uh, issues with their, with their medications, be that as it may, blood pressure medication or their diabetes medications, whatnot, we, um, it, it's going to increase. And so there's several different ways that you can calculate their frailty, and there's different scales that you can look into. One that's, I think, the easiest to remember is the frail scale that looks at fatigue, the inability to co- to climb a flight of stairs, it's the resistance, ambulation, ability to walk uh, one city block, the illness burden, um, and their weight loss. And there's uh, uh, several different places that, that you can pull the scale up, pretty easy to find. Um, I'd recommend it. It's easy to remember. And if they have a score of three or more, then they are considered frail. And for those patients, we need to, yeah, it's, I it's might be pretty easy. Frail. <laughs> yeah, excellent. <laughs> So for those patients, you need to consider a higher blood pressure target because of their risk for adverse issues with their blood pressure medications. Now, certainly with the HIVET trial, looking at some of the um, some of the endpoints from the HIVET trial, a, a blood pressure goal of less than 150 over 90 is, is certainly acceptable and reflected in, in JNC8. But ultimately, we need to look at whether or not we're causing harm. And we need to look at um, one of the things that I do for my elderly patients before I change them their blood pressure medications is to get orthostatic blood pressures on them to ensure that they're not at risk for orthostasis, syncope, um, falling at night especially, and looking at the medications that, making sure I'm not having um, yeah, targets that are being uh, uh, um, affected by, mul- by more than one medication. W- one example would be, say, carvedilol and an alpha blocker. We'd look at stopping one of those, whether or not you're going to stop for the carvedilol and switch to, say, metoprolol or stop the alpha blocker in, uh, completely. Also, I find that combination pills are better for uh, compliance and also um, uh, just uh, for, for quality of life. And if someone's on a twice-daily medication, consider putting them on a sustained release or continuous release medication instead of the twice-daily medications. Um, and if you look at the beers criteria list, they specifically point out uh, a couple of medications that, that are of concern. Um, however, they can be used in some patients, one of which is the uh, uh, nifedipine, the immediate-release nifedipine calcium channel blocker because of the concern for, hy- for hypotension. Um, and then also for uh, patients with a low uh, creatinine clearance, uh, spironolactone is also of concern. But in general, one of the things that I, I always keep in mind is that if someone is orthostatic, I'm going to stop their diuretic. Right, unless they have a history of CHF, then I'm I'm likely going to stop that diuretic component, and I'm probably going to put them on something that's going to be less implicated in uh in in, in orthostasis. Also, we need to consider um, uh, treating if if someone has a history of BPH, maybe consider if they can't tolerate alphazosin and they're on other blood pressure medications, maybe consider carvedilol, which has some of the alpha blockade uh, activity in the medication in order to treat not just their blood pressure, but also the BPH symptoms as well. So that's the way that I approach uh, blood pressure management in my elderly patients. What do you guys think? I I like what you said about checking the orthostatics and something that something that I had started to do was to just check a standing blood pressure mm-hmm. because generally the seated blood pressure had been checked by the technician on the walk in and I, I wanted to see I, I cared more about like what's happening after they're standing. Um, there was a recent article just last month about kind of looking at most patients who have orthostatic hypotension and specifically falls or harm from orthostatic hypotension are going to have it within the first minute of standing. But you will start to catch more people if you go 
to the three minute time point. So, I mean, I think there's, there's, there's not really a great answer as to which one you do. Cause I, I thought I had it where you do it at a minute and then do it again at three minutes to see if the patient's dropping off. But now this was suggesting that you really only need to, to wait within that first minute and check, check the blood pressure. Paul, is that what you're doing for your practice? That, that is exactly what I'm doing for my practice. And then also, um, I, I'm agreeing with Stuart. It feels weird, but every so often <laughs> oh, it happens. No. This this idea of looking at the patient and actually seeing who we're treating. So the evaluating for frailty first or checking for orthostasis, like actually seeing the impacts of the medications we're prescribing rather than just going by numbers alone, I think is a really important and valuable point. So cherish this special moment. You mentioned medications for BPH before, Stuart. If I'm starting someone on an alpha blocker for BPH, I usually am going to give them 30 tabs or 60 tabs. I'm not going to give them three months supply with, with a number of refills and, and kind of just let them ride for the year. Cause I, I want them to be calling me at 30 days or be calling me at 60 days, whatever the length of the trial is and say, Hey, Dr. Watto, that medication was really helping me. I need it back because if they don't call you and they just stop taking it, it probably wasn't helping them. And if right. you're worried about reliability with the patient, you could schedule them for a follow-up, you know, when their prescription is going to run out so that you can kind of talk to them and decide together if it's, if it's kind of the risks versus benefits are worth them continuing it. And a specific medication where this comes up all the time or class of medications would be the ones for, for dementia. So the anticholinesterase inhibitors and uh, uh, and emimantine, both of you those. You mean acetylcholinesterase inhibitors? Acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. Thank yeah. you, Stuart. You're welcome. I'm forgetting my uh, terminology here. Thank you. Yes, exactly. So denepazil is the one that I would would most commonly use just because of the formulary where I was working. And I would always upfront give patients and families the counseling. Like if, if someone, if someone, let's say someone's coming in, they have mild Alzheimer's dementia, I'm going to be giving them denepazil and we're all going to kind of decide, we're going to say, listen, we know this medication might not work. We're going to kind of reevaluate again in three months and see, do we think this has been providing benefit? And then you really have to have them look out for kind of the GI side effects. Uh, also, there's some there can be bradycardia with that medication. But one of the, the biggest problems is that it can make patients nauseous and patients can start to lose weight on this medication, which is something you don't want in your already right. frail elderly patients. That's right. And I agree. And as I was mentioning to you before, so I had heard this and I just, I didn't look up all the trials, but I looked up one of the trials where they were kind of looking at denepazil versus denepazil plus momantine um, or denepazil alone for kind of treating moderate to severe dementia. And actually denepazil alone they had a clinically significant change in the mini mental. Basically, patients who were on denepazil and didn't discontinue it, they had a, a mini mental, which is out of 30, their mini mental was 1.5 points higher than patients who discontinued the med or, um, or, you know, the group that they were comparing it to. And that is a statistically significant change. But clinically, Paul, what do you think? A mini mental change of 1.5, like, is the patient going to feel that? Is the caregiver going to be like, this is great? Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like that's that's sort of concordant with my empiric experience where I'm not seeing miraculous improvement in patients who start on that. And in truth, after you administer a bunch of mini mentals, you know, a, a difference of one and a half is really not all that momentous, at least in my experience. I don't know about you guys. So I, it's 
I'm not saying there's zero benefit, but I'm just saying I, I feel like you need to manage expectations a little bit when prescribing the medication. So I think your approach of let's give it 30 days and see what happens is, is probably a yeah. well-reasoned one. Well, yeah. 90, ni- 90 days, but yeah. I mean, No, only 30, only not 30. a day more. <laughs> I, I usually do 90. I'm a little, a little no, more generous. I'll do 11 refills of warfarin, but that's the only one I do any kind yeah. of refills on. <laughs> And and the ninety day thing comes from um, I had mentioned it earlier, but the American Geriatric Society, the Choosing Wisely, they kind of recommend if you're going to use these meds, right. like Paul said, counsel expectations and and give the ninety day trial, um, and then look out for side effects. Yeah, I think we talked about that one time in the past on a different episode. I I, I can't remember now. I, it was probably the 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 uh, dementia episode. Yeah. I think it was actually. It it might have been. It, that would make sense. I can't sense. tell if you're joking. Is this a bit? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm I'm actually not not, not joking. Uh, I <laughs> but think, I have forgotten. I think that means. <laughs> I, I mean, guys, we could talk about this this topic forever. I th- these are some of the disease specific topics I I wanted to highlight. I recommend that everybody at least glance at the beers criteria. It doesn't take that long because it's just a lot of tables. It tells you which medications to look out for. Um, of course, anticholinergics are play a strong part in there, but they, I, I think you should read that and consider some of these things when you're prescribing medications um, that you heard on the show tonight. That's right. Any, any final comments, guys, before we go to the outro? I don't, while we're recommending stuff, I, I really enjoyed the article as much as I enjoy any article. The the JAMA article that was referenced earlier, the polypharmacy and the aging patient and the review of glycemic control by uh, Lipska et al. that I, I imagine will be in the show notes. I think that yes. one's worth a look if you want to think about either de-escalating or managing diabetes in your, in your older patients. I think it's actually a really great uh, review article that's worth taking a look at. Absolutely. All right. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, mm-hmm. bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And please sign up to receive our email mailing list where we will send you a monthly video newsletter and also a weekly uh, PDF copy of our show notes where you can get tools, tips, and tricks for your practice. So you can get that at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. Hmm. Also, send us your emails to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm here with Dr. Paul Nelson Williams right there. <laughs> yeah. You're really having a blast with this Skype cam, aren't you, Stuart? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Dr. Stuart. Oh, you're even taking away my moment to shine. Go ahead. (laughs) Go, Stuart. Just go. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Good night. Go ahead, Paul. Good night. (laughs) In disgust. (laughs) 